Good morning, and thank you for tuning in to the Global Current on 89.5 FNWSOU. I'm your host, Valentina Rajarena. We're keeping in current this week with Kayla Rivers, Kelsey Harris, and Dr. Simone Alexandra, who are part of the West Indian Student Organization here at CN Hall University. And they're here today to discuss who and what is the West Indian Student Organization. Thank you so much, Kayla, Kelsey, and Dr. Alexandra for helping us out today and agreeing to be on the show. Let's start off by getting to know each one of you. Kayla, did you want to go first? Uh, sure. First of all, thank you for even having us here. It's been awesome just like working with you guys to have this topic. My name is Kayla Rivers. I am a senior and I'm studying anthropology with minors in Diplo and nonprofit studies. And in terms of the Western Institute organization, I have been a part of it since my freshman year. I was super excited because I was born and raised in the Virgin Islands. And so finding a club that you celebrated West Indian culture was so awesome for me. And so I continued my involvement and into my junior year last year, I took on a leadership position. And this year I um, continue on the e-board of LISO and I am the vice president. Nice, congratulations. Thank you. Kelsey? Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, my name is Kelsey Harris and I am a senior diplomacy major at Seton Hall. And I also minor in nonprofit studies, economics, and French. I joined the Western Incident Organization in 2017 when I first came to Season Hall because I am also from the Caribbean. I was raised in Antigua for really my entire life. And when I had met Kayla, probably during orientation, she probably told me about the organization, a meeting or an event that they were having and I probably tagged along with her, and I've been a part of the organization ever since. Um, in my sophomore year, I was the community service chair, and even though I was not on the executive board in my junior year, I still participated in events and supported the organization. That sounds awesome, thank you. Dr. Alexandra? Okay, hi, um, my name is Simone James Alexander. I am a professor in the English department, um, and I'm also an affiliate member of the Russian and Eastern European language, affiliate member also of the Spanish um, department at Seton University and um, women's studies. I am originally okay from the um, Caribbean, okay, actually Diana. I'm serving right now okay, as an advisor, but I used to be an advisor since in 2006. So I've served as advisors of West Indian State Organization for several years, right? And then I had a lapse, I believe, between 2007 and 10, and then of course I became the advisor um, for the organization again, I think the last two or three years, but I've served okay in this capacity maybe 10 to 12 years since I almost got signal um, yeah. So that's my kind of a connection to the organization. Um, I, I do Caribbean studies, okay, pretty much that's my area of specialization. I do the Black diaspora in general, but with specific concentration okay, in the Caribbean. Okay, that sounds awesome. Um, I'm really glad to have all of you here because, you know, it's firsthand experience. You all lived there before, so. I think this is going to be an interesting conversation. Now tell me about the history of the organization. You know, when did it start? What does it consist of? Kayla, maybe if you want to answer that. Yeah, I'll take the lead on that. In terms, Dr. Alexander, do you know the exact date that we so began? I know it was around for several years. 
um, my freshman year, I was made aware that WISO actually had a brief lapse where it didn't have as much membership. And so that year, 2017, was um, kind of its reintroduction to campus. And since then, it has grown in its general body membership. Um, we currently have seven people on the e-board. And just in general, we the organization is open to everyone. It's not just for people of West Indian descent, but mm -hmm. we celebrate West Indian culture in all of its nuances. And so we educate about a lot of the history of the culture of the different islands. We do sociopolitical awareness. We do fundraisers. And so just in a range of programming is all, you know, to celebrate um, being West Indian. If I may, um, I don't necessarily know the exact date of the statement. I came to Seton Hall in 2000, and I think I became a part of it in 2001. And I know we had a very, very vibrant, okay, you know, group of young women then, and I think it fizzled off, a little, as you said, maybe in 2017, when you kind of like revamped the organization. But it used to be very, very, very dynamic. Um, and what I can do, okay, I can also maybe contact, because I'm still in touch with some of these young women, you know, who've gone on to be, you know, great lawyers, to find out if they have any kind of, like, you know, data or any information, you know, so at least I think you need to have an archive, be able to look at the trajectory of the organization. But I can reach out, you know, to, you know, two of these young women to see if they have any of that information that they can share with us. But I know it used to be very vibrant, very, you know, kind of like, you know, um, you had lots of activities, you know, they were very dynamic. They were doing a whole lot of different things on campus at that particular moment. And that's how I came on board, you know, with that group. Um, and I knew that you guys were trying to rebuild, okay, later on, yeah, but I don't have exact dates, but I knew it would have been okay since about in the 2000s when I came on board of that brief period where it wasn't as active that information has kind of been lost over time of when it exactly um, began mm -hmm. but it is um, a, a large Oregon campus organization on campus now with a, a lot of membership. Now that we're in 2020 it's been a while since 2001 so I mean I'm very glad <laughs> to hear that it's been you know still very much alive. So I want to ask for any of the listeners that may not know where what the West Indies consist of or where they're located. Somebody could explain that for me, maybe Kelsey. If I had to answer that question, um, it, it's funny because growing up, I used to think that the West Indies only consisted of the Eastern Caribbean, which was just the the little islands in the lesser and like well the lesser Antilles, so Antigua, the Virgin Islands. Um, St. Lucia, all the way down to, to Trinidad and, and Guyana as well. But it was only in my junior year, someone had asked me if like Puerto Rico was considered a part of the West Indies. And I went online and actually searched a picture of the West Indies and realized that it consists of the entirety of the islands really between like Florida and uh, South America. So it includes uh, Cuba, it includes Puerto Rico, it includes Hispan Hispaniola. Um, so really that whole chain of islands in that region in the Caribbean Sea is um, considered the West Indies. But I feel as though that in terms of the specific islands that identify as West Indian, um, most of them tend to be of English-speaking origins. And it's mostly the smaller um, islands that I would have spoken about, probably Guyana, probably Jamaica, even though they don't fit into that specific region as well is what I consider to be the West Indies. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I explained that. No, definitely. Uh, that's well very enough. Insightful. 
Yeah, um, if I may, because I think quite often to um, remember the term West Indies opium, it pretty much will refer to the greater Antilles as well as the lesser Antilles, mm -hmm. right? And isolated island groups of the North American continent as well, as well as the South American continent, right? So remember, I mean, that's what it refers to, but I think in some sense, too, people have begun to use the, Car the Caribbean, right? In, in some sense, in a much broader context, because I think the Caribbean also allows you to also include, I think, countries that have... Um, you know, that's close to the Caribbean basin. But I think what has also happened historically, those of us from the Anglo or the English speaking Caribbean, you know, we tend to consider the West Indies is only, as you were saying earlier on, um, KFC was only okay, you know, to a certain number. Jamaica was also part of that great time. Jamaica, Cuba, they were all part of the, um, you know, of those island nations. But I think, you know, in some sense, we, I think we were brought up to think monolithically about this island space, right? And that's not necessarily okay, um, you know, hmm. Even though the words can West Indies and Caribbean are used interchangeably, West Indies technically refers to the greater and the lesser Antilles in those places, right? And I feel as though Caribbean, as I said earlier on, give you perhaps okay much more flexibility. It's much more, I would say, kind of like you know, inclusive. For example, I think quite often if you were to ask anyone where are you from, I don't think people know so we're from the West Indies, we're from the Caribbean, and then list you know our islands, right? But I think West Indies okay has a direct relation and correlation to Columbus, right, and discovering, mm. right, and those people, and those of us who, who are kind of like, you know, um, critics, you know, there's also a criticism to be made, okay, in terms of like, you know, the whole note of discovery, but I think mm -hmm. that's where that is founded, that's the kind of like historical foundation of. Thank you for clearing that up, because, you know, even I was a little confused, I'm like, you know, Caribbean versus West Indies. Yeah, they're used interchangeably, but hmm. technically, that's where the West Indies refer to those specific lesser and greater Antilles, yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you, thank you. Um, like, I don't um, use the term a lot, right? I don't, and I, mm -hmm. I guess because you guys are also West Indian students for organization. Like, most of us who do Caribbean, we say we do Caribbean studies, West Indian studies, right? Because we're Caribbeanists. I want to continue on that. Um, I know you mentioned the controversy and the discovery, if you could. Tell me more about that and how everything kind of came to be, you know, the, the discovery of the islands and how the culture developed over time and how we see it today, maybe. I can say that maybe you guys can jump in. Um, as, as, I, as I mentioned, okay, earlier, okay, Columbus, most of you know, I mean, he came up in 1492, right? And he was in that region. And I think, okay, the, um, the, Spanish, and the, the Spanish colonies or the settlement okay, began in 1493, right? Because, you know, Hispaniola and all of those different mm -hmm. places. Um, again, as like in any other place, you know, the first inhabitants okay, were the natives, right? Different people in the country call it, I mean, I know Americans say American Indians. We say Amerindians. I'm not sure how Kelsey or Kela, how it's referred to um, in their home spaces, but of course, they're the native people who were there. Um, and of course, when they got there, they enslaved them. As we all know, that whole history, they enslaved the native people. Okay. When the workforce okay, was not enough, of course, they began to slave, dealing okay, in slavery, right? And as we know as well, okay, they brought okay, you know, um, large groups of Africans, you know, to kind of like, you know, to toil the land and to be, and to kind of like, you know, cultivate the land as a form of and as we said, okay, as I said, Columbus was there, but after Columbus came, they're also from, um, you know, Spain, they're different colonies like the British Oak and the Portuguese colonies who also claim, claim land, you know, and that's how they begin that kind of a colonization um, of the different islands. Um, and as you know, too, as I said, okay, 
eventually the British colonies, and I'm speaking particularly in the British colonies, right? Because that's okay that we were all part of that whole British colony system. But I think we also tend to forget there's also, you know, the Spain, Portugal, and different parts, which goes back to Kelsey's point about okay, how do we conceive of the Caribbean, right? And I think when you live in that space, right, you see the Caribbean speaking countries, but of course, and this pertains to the British colony. But again, then again, okay, the slave trade, as we said, was very rampant with the British colony. Um, I think it was 1807, I think they decided to abolish the slave trade, right? And as most of us, us know, right, once that um, was abolished, they then had to find, they used different people who they've enslaved within as a way to work on the land. That was not sufficient. And that's when we begin that system of indenture trade, right? As most mm -hmm. of you know, um, and predominantly okay, they brought Indians from India, they were predominantly in Guyana, Trinidad, and as you know, lots of, um, you know, like Fiji, lots of African countries, they also settled in. But um, as I said, okay, we were once colonies, right? And once we gained independence, right, we became a different country, so we could apply to different countries differently. Um, again, when we're speaking about emancipation, we have to look at different nations, different, because I mean, it happened in the Dutch Caribbean, in the um, um, Spanish Caribbean, okay, Emancipation came at different times, right? But the British were the ones who, um, in some sense, okay, abolished it, okay. Um, as I said, okay, earlier in, you know, mm -hmm. 18, and we eventually, um, you know, became free. Um, if I may just do interesting plot, I think what is also very interesting too, is that when, okay, the slavery was abolished in 1833, and ironically, I think it's a very opportune time that you're having this discussion British, former British West Indies will be celebrating Emancipation Day. It's August 1st. That's when we got emancipated in 1833, and mm. they're celebrating it. It became, 1833 is when the British abolished slavery, but it took effect in 1834. So all British West Indies Islands celebrate Emancipation Day on August 1st, mm. 1834. So they have big celebrations right now, or kind of big celebrations in whenever August 1st is. Um. And then just to add to that, as we're talking about like how the development of the different islands, um, especially when we're talking about like West Indian versus Caribbean, because there were so many different colonial entities. And so we see that there's, I think a lot of people identify with West Indian culture because there are a lot of like overlapping similarities between the different islands. Mm -hmm. um, and, but like overall, as it pertains to the entire West Indies, there's this combination of the indigenous populations that were there, the colonial powers that came through and then brought their influences, and then the range of enslaved um, Africans that were brought, and then the other periods of migration from other countries or even throughout the Caribbean. So in my specific example, I'm from St. Thomas, which is part of the United States Virgin Islands, which is uniquely of the Caribbean islands that is a U.S. part of the U.S. country, it's U.S. territory, and so we see a lot of immigration from other Caribbean islands. You know, a majority of the other islands come to the U.S. as a migration hub because, you know, U.S. status whilst being a part of the Caribbean. And then we see just like overall in terms of culture, a lot of the things that are deemed cultural to specific islands are really this like mixture of things that happened over time from the colonial entities and modifications from the enslaved African indigenous people. So, you know, when we talk about, it's like my case, St. Thomas, there are like cultural fabrics or cultural dances, but really and truly they were adaptations from the French colonial power that the indigenous and the enslaved populations kind of modified in that specific time. And now it's deemed a St. Thomian cultural thing, but 
it first, you know, was influenced to us by the colonial entities, France or Denmark. Mm -hmm. uh, and so each island has its own little uniqueness based on, you know, their specific indigenous population um, or their specific colonial entity or entities that came throughout the different time periods. Since I know you guys told me that you all come from different parts of the, the West Indies, Caribbean, can you guys tell me about what effects of colonization you still saw today, in a sense, well, whether it's like tourism? and In a lot of ways, I think that it's easy for people in the Caribbean to think that we're, we're free and we're years ahead and we're beyond um, colonialism, but in a lot of ways, we're we're not free <laughs> and we're not ahead <laughs> as we think we are. Um, looking at many of the islands and our main industries, especially the smaller islands like Antigua, our main industry is tourism. You see it in the hotel industry, restaurant, the events that we have here. People's careers are heavily dependent on tourists, usually coming from the States or England, Europe, wherever. And um, most of the tourists do come to Antigua are white. So the, the conversation that does happen a lot is that tourism has become sort of a, a, a new form of colonialization in, in a way. Your entire economy is dependent on people and, you know, people from, who have historically, from countries that have historically held us back our, our livelihood is dependent on them coming to our countries. I know where I'm jumping ahead here, but even with the COVID situation, I saw a map today that CNN posted on their mm -hmm. Instagram page of all the countries in the world that have a ban for U.S. travelers. And everywhere was red. And the only place that was blue, which allowed like U.S. Um, citizens to come, was in the Caribbean. There are a few others, but mostly it was in the Caribbean. And it's because our borders are open because we, we rely so heavily on tourists um, coming here. It, it's really sad because while countries have the economies to essentially shut down and say, we don't want you here, but we can you know, rely on our local industries to sustain ourselves, we can't really do that because we've built an economy that is not that resilient against you know, economic mm -hmm. hardships like this. So it's really unfortunate, especially because any of the cases that have, of COVID that have been coming to Antigua mostly have been from tourists. Mm. Um, there has been very limited community spread. Um, most of the time it's a tourist. They find out that they have COVID. And then within a week, they're typically gone because their trip is over. Um, but if there is community spread, it's usually because they would have mingled with the locals while they were here. Mm. And we don't have that freedom to just shut down our economy because we rely on tourism. I don't know if Kayla would have a, if, if that's something similar that's happening now. Oh, definitely. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, just speaking specifically to tourism and your point that we're dependent on, you know, people coming in for our livelihood, um, it speaks to the whole element that, like, your product, um, the type of tourism, the type of products you're putting out to attract tourists you're you know you're oftentimes like assimilating it or adapting it because you want to make sure it appeases to that tourist for them to continue to want to come and so you know just being economically dependent that way um 
has a major influence on you know how the people operate within the island and then um, even in my case as being a U.S. territory so we're still impacted by the federal government right so when it came to coronavirus, like we actually don't even have the authority to close our own borders. Like that's a decision that comes from the U.S. Hmm. So all while corona cases were happening, um, tourists were still flying in. And I actually saw a statistic that was generated, I believe, by CNN that looked at coronavirus cases. And so because airports weren't, I mean, airline industry weren't flying into St. Thomas, tourists weren't coming as frequently. So we got our cases down to zero. But then when, you know, airlines started flying in and our port is open because we don't have the authority to close it ourselves, our cases skyrocketed to a 700% increase in two weeks because tourists came through and brought that many cases of corona with them to the point where we still have several active cases today. And so, you know, that's one big example of dependency on outside forces and how we're largely impacted by you know what happens when they come and i think there's lots of thoughts kind of like you know going on about you know caribbean self-sufficiency right and i would say okay for example um guyana which is located because you may all know in south america but because of a common language and culture we part of the caribbean we're not necessarily okay a tourist we be not that independent okay on tourism as okay many of the other islands are um but i think there have been lots of thoughts and there are lots of scholars in the region as well you know who kind of like looking at tourism okay and have been arguing okay a lot that we need to kind of like you know to be more self-reliant to not be so dependent on um, tourism also very interesting you know, the jamaica king kato who's a very you know popular very well known author from antigua i mean she's very very critical and lots of not in, not only jamaica kincaid and many of them are seen okay tourism okay, as another form of neo-colonization um and i also teach kincaid with kincaid very very beautifully in some sense okay offers or provides a critique in her kind of like book, it's called a small island. It's called Small Island, yeah. right? And I think and then she give a detail of her concept, you know, she speaks even about the Bird International Airport in Antigua. And I think she even came on a criticism. She was banned from the country, okay, for a while because of her very critical and political stance on it. But I think we've been having these conversations, you know, forever about, okay, you know, self-sufficiency and reliance. And most of the countries, even Jamaica, you know, most of these countries rely so heavily, okay, on tourism, which is a major, you know, I think a very major, major issue that at some point, um, you know, we do have to at some point address, okay, how then do we survive, right, if we're always dependent on, you know, on outside forces, right, then if, you, if you're that dependent, then outside forces also then dictate. Mm -hmm. right how you kind of like you know manage you know you manage your own you know island space and then of course the question of sovereignty also perhaps also maybe becomes becomes complicated in some way shape or form but um but that's a major major issues there um lots of you know books on it lots of caribbean scholars you know who've been addressing how detrimental it is right to to one's well-being when you're so reliant on and predominantly american and british kind of like tourists um mm -hmm. that's a major issue we can solve right? i wanted to ask for um kayla when you were talking about the virgin islands not having much authority for themselves to be able to say they don't want so many tourists you know even though it's a part of the u.s like a governor or somebody to enforce like say lockdowns like we had here in the in um north american like u.s um territories 
Yeah, so um, I think by definition, we're an un unincorporated territory. So we do have our own like legislative body and governor, but at the same time, we're, you know, impacted by the constitution and the federal government. Mm -hmm. So on our end, the governor was able to uh, enforce a lockdown. So businesses were closed and there was a quarantine. But, um, you know, if on a local end, we're doing our part to prevent the virus in different ways, but at the same time, our ports are still open and hmm. we can't close that down. That's still um, a direct influence on how we operate um, in so many ways. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is very, you know, kind of crazy. Know, Kayla, if I may pose a question to Kayla as well, if you don't mind. Um, isn't that because it's still part of the U.S. territory? Isn't that pretty much open the major reason why in some sense you have to follow the protocols? It's, I mean... Is, there, is, is it because of the U.S. territory? That's why. Yeah, that's why. It's because it's a U.S. territory. Well, which is also ironic because it also makes me think, okay, I mean, we've closed, we've closed, okay, no, the board. But I mean, we did at some point, right? And we're still restricting travels within the U.S. And I find it very ironic, right? That they're allowing free travel within that nation space, which begs the question, you know, why, right? It's a predominantly people of color space, right? Blacks and brown folks. So it's very interesting in terms of like, you know, different policies and how they apply. Like as it brings up the topic of like neocolonization, like that's it in a nutshell. This is just a different form of mm -hmm. a colony. Yeah. yeah, that's why I, I had to ask them. Like you see the U.S. and their states closing them borders and say, oh, we don't want you here right now because we're fearing for our lives. Yet places, these islands have to accept these people and say, well, we do fear for our lives, but we also want to keep our country going and need our economy to survive. I think that Kayla, Kayla will definitely be able to comment on this more, but I also feel as though um, U.S. citizens in the, U the U.S. Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico are, are very much othered in a lot of these conversations mm -hmm. um, regarding like the pandemic or even during like um, natural disasters or just anything to benefit the U.S. I feel as though there's a difference between the way Americans view themselves in America versus um, in the yeah, islands. Americans, um, yeah. And so there's a, there's a level of protection and, you know, protectiveness that comes when you're in the States that pe people just don't see in the island. They don't really see them as a part of, they don't view them as one. They don't see them as like their fellow brothers and sisters, but just this separate um, nation. Kind of remind yeah. me like Puerto Rico often too. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. Puerto Rico. Forget about them. And we mm -hmm. see that during a hurricane, how Puerto Rico speak it kind of like, you know, hardly, especially you know, by the government, where they're not mm -hmm. seen as, you know, part of the whole landscape. And I think a lot of it has there's a racial component. I don't think we can dismiss the racial component to the all of them. Mm -hmm. That these are black and brown people. So I feel as though we cannot overlook, we cannot overlook that. Mm -hmm. I, I, I want to emphasize like Kelsey's point a lot when it comes to those conversations, these like non-self-governing territories of the United States, like the USBI, like Puerto Rico, are very othered in these conversations and not offered the same level of protections. So with the same, you know, 2017 hurricanes that occurred, um, did we necessarily receive as much aid and as much attention when that conversation was happening? Um, you know, having been hit by both Category 5 hurricanes in comparison to the new sites that we're talking more about the areas within the, like, United States that were hit less severely. So just oftentimes ignored in those conversations and being a very vulnerable population. 
Um, I'd like to ask, you know, if you guys have families in these islands, have you asked them how the COVID situation is being handled? Like, how does everyday life look like over there for them, maybe? That information is available, right? I mean, that information is, I'm not sure about um, Kayla and Kelsey, um, but that information is very much kind of like available. Um, one of the good things I think, and, and I, I did pull it up, but I have to sit, this is for each country in the Caribbean, okay, and the Caribbean, in terms of like the numbers and so on. So maybe I can find it, okay, while um, Kayla wanted or, or, or Kelsey speak, but it's available. But one of the beautiful things, I guess, or one of the fortunate things so far is that we have not seen a widespread of you know, the COVID or within the Caribbean okay, nations. Um, and for the most part, I think I can speak ports are closed down for most of these um, you know, countries. Mm -hmm. um, but I think for some reason, I think they were proactive very early on, but the numbers are not as astronomical as think, they are here. You I know. think that, yeah, I think that comparing the, the, the policies that the government has put into place, because I'm in Antigua right now, I'm in my, my home here. So the policies that they've enacted here, I mean, I think, I think it's something to be proud of. We, we still have a, a curfew here in Antigua. I think it's from like 6 a.m. till 11 p.m. Um, they've opened up restaurants, but, you know, a lot of restaurants and grocery stores have hand-washing stations outside now. Clubs and bars are closed. Church gatherings, I think, are up to like 25 or 30 people. Um, they're doing like, everywhere I've gone now has social distancing um, measures. We were supposed to, carnival is a big event here and our carnival is supposed, was supposed to happen like, I think next week and throughout mm -hmm. the summer. And so that has entirely been canceled. There've been no big fets or parties or anything of that nature. There have been many restrictions put in put into place that are are still being followed through uh, mm -hmm. today. Um, even coming through in the airport when I traveled in June, um, they have a hotel here. Like it's it's a it's a lower scale hotel, but they have a hotel here that the government has set aside as the quarantine facility for when mm -hmm. locals do come in to mm -hmm. quarantine. It, they say that if you have a space in your home that you can quarantine safely, then you can go home. So I was able to come home because I, I could have done it safely here. Mm -hmm. And um, for the 14 days, we, I, I was quarantining. Um, during that 14-day period, I believe one time somebody, like a health official, called just to ask us, like, when I say us, my sister and myself, like how we were doing in quarantine mm -hmm. very quickly. But there still has been a lot of backlash because the locals are being treated differently than the tourists. For, and in the government's minds, I guess it makes sense because the locals are the ones who live here, who are going to be working, going to school. So I guess more precautions have to be taken with like quarantining them. But I think that for tourists, they're, they're not mandatory quarantines in place for them. They're allowed to go to the hotels and even though some of them have taken COVID tests at the airport, the government does not tell them to stay in their rooms until they receive the results so, back. So a lot of them go to their hotels, even though they have pending that. But tests, otherwise, I think generally, and the then that they find out that they have it within days. For the most part, I've, and they've been already pretty like, proud of what we've Yeah, and I think across, and I think that's one of the backdrops, as you were saying, Kelsey, of of tourism, right? Where the whole notion. I think they're given that level of freedom as well because they know they're bringing money into the country. They don't want to kind of like disrupt the flow. The yeah, right. So that's exactly why. I mean, if you if you restrict them and you quarantine, mm -hmm. then of course, your dollars, right? You're looking at your kind of like you know. Uh, how that's going 
going to feature dogs. But just very quick, I just wanted to give you an okay, update on the COVID. And I'm, I'm just going to quote the three countries since the three of us are from um, those countries. And this is as of July 30th. I think Guyana recently, I think, got like eight more additional deaths, which is not good. But for Guyana, there were 398 cases, 20 deaths, and 185 recovered. For U.S. Virgin Islands, 398, just as Guyana cases, eight deaths, 297 recovered. And for Antigua and Barbuda, 91 cases, three deaths, and 67 recovered. So as we said, I think all in all, you know, it's, I know our population is also smaller, but I think all in all, I don't think they're doing as bad in, you know, kind of controlling and contain, especially since we're supposedly, you know, third world, even though I have issues with the... <laughs> You know, the monitor, <laughs> but I think, you know, um, especially if you compare the United States, right? 150,000 dead, right? And of course, we're not the first world, so to speak, right? And I yeah, like I was going to definitely say that you guys are doing so much them. better than the U.S. Everybody else is doing so much not better. Everybody, you know, I never thought <laughs> of the day that other countries would have banned the U.S. from coming there. But that's so a wake-up call, right? When we could have been preventing it, it could have been controlled. You know, we lack some leadership that, you know, I'm so glad that is present in these islands. It saves a lot of lives. Can I ask? Can I say to, something very quickly? I would have loved to share this information with you. I sent it to a couple of my students. Cuba, mm -hmm. and I wish I could pull that information mm -hmm. And remember as well to what is also very interesting, Cuba has also been sending lots and lots of doctors to all the Caribbean islands to assist them in aiding them. Yeah, right? That's also something to speak about where, you know, they've been, you know, sending their doctors for free, you know, to help and assist okay, in, in, in the virus. And they so far, the last one I checked, they have no deaths, I believe. And that was about a month ago. I haven't checked recently. So here again, right? I mean, a space where it's considered third world. They're doing pretty well, right? It's very commendable, it's like how mm -hmm. they're handling my game, especially since our medical system and infrastructure is not as good, supposedly, mm -hmm. as the US. But I think all is now laid to bear, right? We've seen everything is exposed now. We see a lot of flaws in the system that, you know, I mean, hopefully we can move forward from this now. Okay, interesting. So I really want to bring up, you know, during these critical times, there's a lot going on, even in the U.S., um, especially with the Black Lives Matter movement. I wanted to know how that looks like in these islands and what are people saying about that? What do they see? What is the perspective there? Um, I think that from from the, while the Black Lives Matter was at its its peak, I was still in New Jersey. Um, and so I can go based off of what I was seeing on social media from mostly my peers in Antigua. And I think that all in all, everyone was really supportive of the movement and what it represented for Black people in America, even though we don't have those um, issues of racial inequality and racialized um, crime, um, police brutality here, I think you know, having empathy and understanding that we have a Caribbean diaspora that lives in the States, um, mm -hmm. that this could happen to, um, made us just as supportive of the movement. But I also think that, unfortunately, it, with the social media and the, the activism that we saw online from people in the Caribbean, that's kind of where it, it ends, <laughs> unfortunately. 
because we don't live there and because we're not, you know, in the thick of it, it's very easy to simply just post a photo, post a bail fund, um, and think that you've, you've contributed, you've done your part. And essentially what that can do is just continue to preach to the choir the same message um, round and round. So unfortunately, I, I still question like how far our activism could have gone or where it should have gone because I think social media gave us a voice in a way to talk about the issue, but unfortunately, it, it doesn't carry the conversation as far as people probably thought they took it. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm talking about Antigua, like my peers just like posting things online. Um, mm-hmm. They probably thought that they were contributing to the movement, but it, it really was just a, a photo. Cause I, and I think it was easier for people in the States to, to give money to the bail funds, to go to the protests and do things like that. But here we can only watch from afar and you know say our prayers and hopes can i make a point that um you mentioned that you know you don't see as many of the issues in antigua as you see as like the u.s might see them would you say because Mm -hmm. you know um there's not like white cops versus like uh just like people of colors being Mm -hmm. like being the the issues as much yeah i i i would say that in terms of when we're talking about like police brutality personally mm-hmm. that's not something that's not even really a term that i would have grown up really using in yeah. antigua really um we are a predominantly black society so those issues those deeply racialized issues mm-hmm. are not things that we would see here but just like anywhere else in the world you know racism does yeah. exist mm-hmm. i think colorism does exist but mm-hmm. america has a very deep-rooted history with like race that you know is probably not present as much in in these islands because yeah, i'm happy that you said when you were saying about okay the police brutality you and i would agree with you but i feel as though you're right there there are racial inequities as we know in some especially in antigua where you work on the bank you know people yeah. bank, we all look a certain way so um <laughs> and i think despite it being a predominantly black okay there's also intra racism as opposed to inter-racism. Inter-racism. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I was happy to care, so, you know, said some, some, you know, um, it's there. Right? It's there. Your turn also pronounced, but we do experience, okay, I mean, colorism, as you know, even in the DR and the Haiti stuff, it's very, very deeply rooted. And mm-hmm. remember, all of this is rooted, okay, in white supremacy, mm-hmm. right? I think that's where all of that is coming from. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. For um, the USVI, I was going to speak to, like, yes, there were those elements of just, like, performative activism that Kelsey was talking about, but I think my um, perspective uh, was a lot more, you know, contrary to what Kelsey experienced in Antigua. Um, Yes, there were some people that kind of viewed the support of Black Lives Matter as, like, empathetic, but it opened up that conversation to show, you know, institutionalized, institutionalized racism has several different effects and several different ways in which it's observed and so those the what dr alexander is talking about the classism the colorism which were remnants of colonization that opened up the conversation more to show like this yeah. is how institutionalized, institutionalized racism is felt here and it's um there are some people that you know have kind of just stopped at the protesting or the posting we did have a protest here in saint thomas but I think it has pushed the conversation further and dove more into self-sufficiency efforts uh, as it comes to this matter of, you know, the VI being its own 
moving towards its own decolonization. And so um, the conversation was a little, it is a bit shifted from how it's observed in America because how race, <laughs> race relations in America is a whole other conversation, a whole other animal, but in this majority, well, what is currently a majority black um, population within the West Indies, specifically within St. Thomas, uh, the conversation just shifts and you have to tackle the, the racism in different ways because it is intra versus inter. And I, I think the Black Lives Movement is a, I think it's a global phenomenon because I mean, I mean, look how many people walk up across the world, even okay in London, I mean, they're toppling, okay, all of those statues, okay, in London of the colonial masters, right? And I think even, for example, if you see France, people are kind of like opening and um, screaming and speaking up. And I think especially in France, it's also very important because as you know, Guadeloupe and Martinique are still part of the of the French colony. And those are the kids, okay, who are in the streets who protested about how they've been treated unfairly, okay, in these kind of like, you know, countries. So I think... I feel as though it, it's pretty, it has awakened, I think, everyone across the globe. And I know, especially for Guyana, they yesterday, okay, I think what is also very important to you know, the youth people, okay, who are behind this movement. Because yesterday, the youth movement in Guyana pasted the Black Lives Matter on the 1763 monument of um, this national hero who we call Coffee, who was a symbol of resistance. And I think that's all kind of like, you know, because okay, the Black Lives Matter, it's a pro, it's a form of resisting, resisting marginalization, resisting social and racial inequities. So I really feel as though it has a profound effect globally. And I think it has become very, very much transnational, um, you know, in, in this particular. So I think even, you know, as Kelsey was, I think even if you repost the pitch, I think that is in some ways, shape or form also contributing to the movement, right? I mean, you bring in, Shedding light on it, you bring in visibility to the issues. Um, but I really do feel as though it has really, you know, mushroomed into something so powerful and so wonderful to see people from all walks of life, like, you know, coming out and supporting a movement to say, you know, we and need I think, to And I think that even here too, I, I didn't get to say this, it, it brought up a lot of conversations with, you know, issues that we're having here. Um, like when the stat, there was a point where like a bunch of statues are being torn down. And I just read a few days ago that in Barbados, they have a statue of like a Napoleon war sailor named like Parisha Nelson and mm -hmm. in yes. their square. Yeah, Nelson and their, I think um, Mia Motley, their prime minister is going to this. And because it's in their hero square, I believe, in Barbados. Yeah. So they're going to remove it and, I don't know, put something else there. Mm -hmm. And even here, in Antigua, they're called Nelson's Dockyard, in name, the ships and boats used to sail in. And there were a lot of conversations, which really stayed as conversations. It didn't really get anywhere. But people were speaking about, should change the name of Nelson's Dockyard? Is it... Should we have more local um, names and heroes represented rather than these people who contributed to our colonialization? When you bring up the yeah, the heroes and the statues that exist, like there's a conversation um, not as big, but in the Virgin Islands where we have like an area called Emancipation Garden. And when you look specifically, when we talk about what does that even mean, the whole notion of emancipation. So it's, you know, when we were independent in that movement, there's like statues of, you know, colonial powers there. And it's like that conversation about why is the statue up? And even if it is up, why does it exist in that space that's supposed to be this space that talks about the emancipation of the island? And so it, just like Dr. Alexander said, it kind of, it has reinvigorated 
just, you know, transnationally, a lot of conversations about equity and about just like independence and status all around. I just wanted to kind of point out again, like the U.S. being one of the most developed countries in the world and yet receiving so much criticism, but at the same time support from other countries kind of pushing towards this more progressive kind of movement. Whereas like, you know, we think it might, it's like common sense, but somehow in the U.S. it's something that they've been, we've been really struggling with. And just again, it's impressive to see that, you know, the U.S. being behind and all these other countries being moving forward. And, you know, it's, it says a lot sometimes. Importantly, I think it also highlights that it wasn't just the U.S. that, you know, committed these, like, egregious acts mm-hmm. against just other people. And so I, I thought of it, but I didn't mention it when Dr. Alexander was talking about France. And so a big conversation with Black Lives Matter's reparations. And it comes back to that conversation between uh, Haiti and France where they had to pay the independence debt. Um, so when they you got their emancipation, for a century after they were still paying what would equal in today's money like 21 billion dollars to France after they you know, quote, quote, lost their yeah. eight million gold France <laughs> yeah and so that whole topic about you know how that has crippled their economy and is a big influence into how Haiti's established today. And so as we talk about reparations, it's this conversation that it, you know, it was beyond the US. It's, you know, several previous colonial entities that, you know, needs to address some matters that they they set in place. Ladies, anything else you'd like to bring up um, that you feel like especially when talking about okay, what's a, that's a whole different you know, that's a whole different um you know, issue. Um, I, I, I think this is was um, 21 million francs. But what I also wanted to say, especially in terms of reparations, there's also a whole major discussion on to enhance Caribbean, right? In terms of reparation, I think. Um, sorry, Hilary Beckles, who's the chancellor of the University of the West Indies, I think he also has you know detailed information. He's been working on you know reparations and into these different um, spaces because, um, as we said, okay, quite often reparations were not paid. Right? And as most of you, as you do know reparations were given to the colonists and the slave masters, right? For losing, okay, for slavery, okay, being abolished. So I think that's also very, that's, as you know, Kayla was on, um, ongoing, right? Um, but, um, and just to reinforce what she said, okay, about Haiti, so because in current, I think it would be 21, I think it's billion francs, we said, right, Kayla? Um, yeah, I think I think red rate would be around twenty-one billion today's dollars. But I think reparations, okay, is an issue that many people are kind of like discussing. I'm not sure, and especially I know um, here Rebecca's have been looking to the British, right, the Bishop West Indies, to you know to you know to to to, to give back, right, to to correct mm-hmm. um, the wrongs. Um, and as you may also know, recently too in London with the Windrush generation, where lots of West Indies were gone there you know, to assist Britain, okay, um, in the fight in the war, 1840, I mean, they were part of the Windrush generation who now are being sent back home because when they don't have, okay, status because they've been there for so many years, okay, as young kids, right? Um, and I think that's also an issue that the discourse of reparation is also being discussed in relation or in correlation to the Windrush generation of Caribbean, you know, um, Caribbean migrants who went there, you know, to support the country and then now they're treated again, you know, as second-class citizens. Um, mm-hmm. The question of citizenship and second-class citizenship, 
global community are grappling with, even within the United States, with who constitutes self-care citizen, right? We even have a discussion of citizenship right here in the U.S., right? It's just interesting how everything seems to be so circular, cyclical, you know, so much more work, you know, to needs to be done, right? Yeah, and hopefully um, young people will take the baton and, you know, and mm -hmm. move us forward. What, what, what does looking forward look like to you, ladies? I have the young ones go. <laughs> <laughs> now, what, what do we want to see just happening in the future, for the future generations especially, to have to you know, continue? I would want equity. <laughs> I would, uh, especially as it pertains to the West Indian countries, I would want more self-sufficiency for the islands. And so, uh, and that plays out in a lot of different ways, whether that's you just less dependency on tourism and more cultural appreciation and education. So um, self-sufficiency and equity, I think, um, and more community, uh, for lack of a better word, just more unison between just within the populations of specific islands and cross-culturally across the different countries of the West Indies. Uh, more partnership. And based on what you said, too, I think I would want the sense of a global community, right? Where we don't have, okay, where we're not restricted by borders and boundaries, okay, both racial, socioeconomic, and otherwise. Because even when you were talking to me, you were speaking about, okay, you know, um, you know and I would want this, okay, I mean, beyond, you know, to, this is beyond the Caribbean, right? Because mm -hmm. if I, I have kids, okay, you know, who were born here, right? They don't necessarily have that experience, okay, you know, even though yeah. I guess it's a hobby, um, hobby yeah. Yeah, I, I guess it's a kind of like, you know, I'm not sure, cool thing to say, you know, oh, I'm from whatever space or space where your parents are from. But I would hope that in some sense, okay, I mean, that they have this free body, this whole notion of flexibility, flexible citizenship, right? Mm -hmm. We treat each other kind of like, you know, equally, see each other, okay, you know, and to pretty much identify the humanity that we all pretty much kind of like, you know, embody. Um, so I, I would just hope that, you know, things would, you know, um, become better, especially for, for my kids, right? It may, it may not happen in my lifetime. But I'm thinking this whole notion of you know, looking at the whole world as a community, right? Where and and this, and celebrating the differences, right? Not using it as a way to further other to further um, marginalize. And that's why, for me, in some sense, to what I saw happening in the Black Lives Matter movement, with you know young whites, you know all different walks of life, I, I feel that was a very beautiful moment. That's a moment. Hopefully, you know that we can you know go forward. Okay, like you know unity. Right, and I, I just hope, and I feel so we also have to address the inequities that ex exist in societies, right? And we do have to treat, we do have to identify the mm -hmm. common humanity in each and every one of us. I think, and I've always said, okay, how can you hate me and dislike me when you've never met me, right? But mm -hmm. I would just hope, you young guy, you young, you know, ones coming up that you see life very different. Because I look at my own kids and you know, I see them interacting with their friends. You know, I don't feel as though, for me, I don't see that racism and they don't see race, they look beyond race, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm just hoping that that's the kind of world, you know, so I was also very shocked because when I see how they were interacting with their friends, I was very shocked of your experience and what you're experiencing right now, right? This horrible racial division that it just, it just brings tears to my eyes, you know, every time I have to witness some form of brutality that's happening. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm putting my faith in you, you know, in, in all of you right now, right? <laughs> in Valentina, in Bella, you know, and all of you, that, that you do create a better world because you're going to have to live in this world. 
Right. And, and I must say that, you know, I'm really happy that we are having these conversations. And I think it is important that we do have these conversations and able to share them, you know, right. to technology, mm -hmm. to the internet, to TV, that we're able to record this, share all this information, all these discussion point of views to other people who listen, who are interested, and are often wondering, like, what can I do, you know? Yeah. Yeah. just compassion and empathy, right? You don't necessarily have to give anything tangible, right? Because it's just compassion. Yeah. I, I, I just a listening ear. I just listen to the word of course and not kind of like kind of question the person, okay, where did you think the results? And then you listen to you also have to hear. Right? You also have to hear right. being said, you know, and I think if you look to treat someone the way you would want to be treated, right? See the common humanity in that person, you know, and I think that's pretty much that's a starting point. Uh Kelsey, mm -hmm. I don't know if you heard the the question I asked. Um how what would this progress look like to you moving forward? What would progress look like me look like to me? Yeah, moving forward. I mean forward. the moving forward, I mm -hmm. really do recently I've come to the realization that in order to see the change I want to I envision for the world, it mm -hmm. is going to take more of not just these conversations, because I think that's important to have these space these spaces. But if we want to see the real policy and institutionalized changes, we have to become a part of those institutions. And there is mm -hmm. an argument where, you know, entering into an institution that was not built to represent us is not really going to help us. Like putting Barack Obama as a president was not going to help us. Um, wasn't going to be like, you know, the, the savior of everything. But it's definitely going to make, be better than nothing, if that makes sense. And so I think the first step is us entering into those spaces. So the first step is us becoming educated, us getting law degrees, us getting PhDs, us becoming the policy makers for our communities instead of solely just relying on the other or relying on social media alone to drive the conversation. Because I think when we have more of us represented in those spaces, you know, we can better advocate for the things that matter to us. So that's why I'm hoping that all of us present here, whether we're going to enter into academia or public policy or the nonprofit space, we, we, we create um, better systems to elevate those that, you know, otherwise wouldn't have had a chance. Mm -hmm. And to allow people to enter those spaces, because quite often right. you and you're all privileged right now, right? A lot of people who never allowed. So even when you were speaking, I thought it was very interesting, you know, us being allowed to you know, pursue various degrees. Mm -hmm. Allow to enter those kind of like spaces where quite often you know we're not allowed to, you know, and that's why I think when you reference talking about Obama, I mean, it did, you know, and I've always didn't expect him to kind of like to change everything, but what I think it did for me and for my black boys is to show them that they could achieve the strive for mm -hmm. higher you know, heights, right? I think that's what, about, mm -hmm. what I love in some that in their lifetime. They saw a black person who could be all who can be who can reach the highest office, you know. I was happy mm -hmm. with my because I have all sons. I was happy that my sons were able to see the image of a black man who in the highest, you know, office. You office. Know, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. So that's that's, that's yeah. Yeah. 
But mm. it, as I said, Sketch, it's all in your hands, guys. As I said, look, we need a few more Lewis's, <laughs> as you know, I mean, they, um, he, he had his funeral service, but we need a few more John Lewis's, you know, to put our lives on the line. Um, you know, and it's interesting because if I may just, since we've been with Chris, I was listening to, and I'm quite sure, I know you guys are young and you're hip. I was listening to Bujuban <laughs> recently, and I just thought, <laughs> I mean, who were into, you know, reggae and stuff with no revolution. <laughs> <laughs> And I just thought it interesting, you know, I mean, how deep he is in terms of like, you know, speaking about the building of our community building and mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. of I think I don't, um, and I'm just paraphrasing where he said, you know, instead of us going out and purchasing, okay, you know, sneakers that cost perhaps $1,000, why not buy three or four and look just as fly, right? But he was, right. Yeah, he was just, you know, in terms of like, you know, I mean... I mean, and I think he's such a deep and spiritual person. I think even someone, you know, I think you're quite often as young, but you connect more. You know, I mean, there's a connection where you connect with people, okay, you know, I mean, I know my son, you know, the Bujapan Thomas, use him in some as a tool, right, as a lesson to say, mm-hmm. he's also building on love, right, on um, kind of like, you know, I mean, um, coming together as a people, you know, um, you know, to do better, to do good, to advance. Ourselves to advance the race forward. You know, so as I said, I think it's all in your work. Um, um, it's I'm, wonderful to see you guys so engaged. Yeah, we. I definitely won't let you down. I'm, you know, it's really <laughs> great to see all, all these young women, especially women of color, in school. Mm-hmm. Definitely trying our best here, mm-hmm. and given our majors, we really do care about what's happening. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I'm very excited for all of our futures, honestly. Well, see, do you mind giving me a little bit of your background? Um, I didn't get that. Yeah. Um, I, I am a transfer student. Um, I actually came from Bloomfield College. Okay. Uh, I study uh, diplomacy and international relations. Okay. Very interested in sustainable development. Um, mm-hmm. Especially, <laughs> you know, my family is Colombian. Um, I've gone back and forth in Colombia and the U.S. So, yeah. I've also like to say I'm well-rounded and gotten some perspective and mm-hmm. uh, has made me want to uh, get into my major and international mm-hmm. relations and development. So, you know, mm-hmm. even though times are rough right now, but I am very excited for the future and being able to doing, doing what I love and learning. Okay, okay, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think so in your field of study too is also interesting. We get you access, right, to different people from different walks of life. It's very transnational in scope. Right. Um, in fact, I went to Santa Marta, where, you know, um, Colombia, and we're okay. But Shakira is where she was born and grew up. She's very, very popular um, mm-hmm. in Colombia. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. All right. Okay. So I'm. So. So I wanted to ask, um, what's upcoming for the West Indian student organization? Uh, what are some plans for the future? What, I know COVID-19 has really kind of shaken things up and it might be difficult to plan some things, but you know, I really do want listeners to know what's upcoming and how they can get in contact with you and be able to participate. Yeah, definitely. Um, given 
COVID-19, there's a lot of changes. So a lot of our programming is going to shift to be more virtual, but look forward to a lot more events um, that talk about topics like these, political awareness um, and more events that are, you know, to educate more about the culture of the West Indies that aren't just lectures, but are fun and interactive. Uh, if you want to stay up to date uh, with everything what, that's going on specifically, you can follow us on our Instagram, which is shoe underscore weasel. And if you also want to be a part of our email list, uh, that would be weasel at shoe.edu. Awesome. Thank you so awesome. much. Um, any last statements, ladies, before we wrap this up? I mean, I enjoyed our discussion today. I think it was really fruitful. <laughs> Definitely. Thank you for having us. Being here. Thank you yeah, so much for having us. Excited for the topic and you know just a lot of action that can be generated from the conversation. Right. Yeah. Thank you, guys. I, I'm in awe of you. You know, I <laughs> wonderful that you're doing. You know, such great things. And as I said, I do hope that you know that you, as I said, take the button and do good things. Um, and change the world because we do need a change. Right? Um, and I'm here whenever you guys, anything you need, you know, please feel free to reach out. Anything that I can help you with, you know, letters, whatever it is, you know, I mean, please feel free to shoot me an email. Um, Thank you. Calling me whenever. Thank you. <laughs> if I like I'm going to say this closing real quick if you guys want to listen to it. <laughs> What's closing? Um, I have a closing that I have to say for the for the show. Ready? <laughs> that wraps up this week's show. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for updates on the upcoming show. This show couldn't be made possible without executive producer Bella Fisher, technical producer Brittany Segura, assistant technical producer Jason Marieski, interview producer Tian Fan, senior correspondent Jaren Ding. I'm Valentina Rajarena. The Global Current is brought to you by the School of Diplomacy and International Relations at Seton Hall University. Be sure to tune in every Sunday at 7.30 a.m. Eastern Time on 89.5 FM WSOU. Thank you for listening and see you soon.